Amen. So love a Sunday day after the rain, after the storm. Joy comes in the morning. Sometimes it seems there are seasons of rain and storms and spring follows winter. Feels like that around here to me. Uh, what a beautiful day. <clears throat> we are in First, First Kings chapter 17. We are spending a little bit of time walking with Elijah through some dark times in the life of the church, in the life of God's people. God raises up men of the hour, raises up those who would stand and speak boldly to power about the kingdom of God. So we are uh, this morning looking at verses 1 to 6 of chapter 17. Hear then the word of God. And now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him. Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Kareth, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. And so he went, and he did according to the word of the Lord. He went, and he lived by the brook Kareth, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank by the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for this beautiful sunny morning, this almost spring morning. We thank you that joy comes in the morning, that your mercy is new every morning, that you have loved us with an everlasting love that we have gathered this morning as those who have been found in Christ, who know him and love him. And so we have gathered into your presence to give you our worship. So this morning, even as we open your word, would you speak again into our hearts and into our minds, into our lives, words of power, words that do more than inform, but transform the renewing of our minds in the image of Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. We're talking last week about the context of this uh, little encounter of uh, Elijah in the court of the king, that he was confronting Ahab and Jezebel, that Ahab was the seventh in the line of kings in the northern kingdom, that under uh, Solomon's son Rehoboam, the kingdom had split, and Rehoboam took two of the tribes and formed the southern kingdom of Judah, and Jeroboam in his rebellion took ten tribes and formed the northern kingdom of Israel. And that Jeroboam, informing his northern kingdom of Israel, didn't want his people having to travel south into the southern kingdom, and he set up their own form of worship and their own temples and their own systems in the north, which was a great sin against God and His Word and the prescribed worship of His people. But in verse 30 of chapter 16, we're told that Ahab was the worst king yet, that there that all seven of the kings were wicked kings, and Ahab was the most wicked. And not only did he walk in the sins of Jeroboam, but he compounded his defiance against God by marrying Jezebel, a pagan queen, a worshiper of Baal, 
And he fell under her influence, and, and this led the, the country into open idolatry, that Baalism became the state religion of Israel, and that Israel as a nation was largely being led apostate, away from God, away from Yahweh. And Jezebel had the prophets and the priests hunted down and killed. It's a very dark time in the life of Israel. Couldn't get much lower, couldn't get much darker. Where the God of Israel had been banished, in a sense, from his own kingdom. It's into these dark times that Elijah comes wandering down out of the, out of the mountains of Gilead and into the court of the king. And he spoke there with authority the name of Yahweh. He sends the name of Yahweh bouncing off the walls echoing off the walls of the court of the king. It would have been a startling thing in those dark times, in the spiritual darkness of, of that palace where Baal had become the God of Israel, the God of the king. But he speaks the name with authority. It echoes through the halls of power. And it comes with the power to shut up heaven, to shut off the rain. We wouldn't mind that for a little while anyway, you know, just, just a little while. Uh, but he said for years, it's going, to be, it's going to be years. And so his word comes as a, as a judgment, as a demonstration. It comes to Ahab and to all of Israel that is waffling between two positions, between Baal and, and the God of Israel, the historical God of Israel, Yahweh. And he speaks this word so that all will see that Baal is powerless. And that Yahweh lives. And the people of God are going to taste of His power. And so in verses 2 and 3, just as abruptly as Elijah comes, the word of the Lord comes and sends him off. In verses 2 and 3, we're told that the word of the Lord came to him. Depart. Leave from here. Turn eastward. Hide yourself by the brook Kareth, which is east of the Jordan. Just as abruptly as he showed up in the court, he speaks his peace, his one sentence, and then God says, go, depart from here. It might have been something like, run. It's not going to go well with Jezebel, you standing in here and saying the things that you're saying. They told him to go and hide yourself by the brook. Take yourself out of the reach of Ahab and Jezebel. He sends them into the wilderness to an isolated place by a stream over by the Jordan in the wilds of the country away from everyone. There's no people. There's no town. It's just Elijah and a babbling brook and the God who sent them there. And some ravens we'll find. But he's out of Ahab and Jezebel's reach. He's out of everyone's reach. Right? That no, no one is going to be able to find him there. That he's out of their reach in terms of protecting him, but it is also taking Elijah out of the picture into isolation brings a famine on the land, not just a famine that will come by the lack of rain, because where there's no rain, there's going to be no crops. In this part of the world, in this way, years of no rain is devastating. There will be famine in the land, but also Elijah will be removed as God's prophet, and there will be a famine for more than food. There'll be a famine for the hearing of the Word of God. There'll be no more Word. In these years, while the rain is held off, the drought deepens and famine spreads, 
There'll be no word. There will be silence. No one is going to get to ask him questions, probe Elijah for what he knows, a thousand questions that are on their minds. They must all wait and see. Right? They have to all wait and watch for God's word to be fulfilled over these many years. It's an education, an education in power. The first of many that God will demonstrate in this showdown with Baal as he seeks to deliver his people from idolatry. There will be no more word. You will wait and you will watch the power of God. And so God says, go east. Go to the face of the Jordan. As you read that, the face of the Jordan, it says here east of the Jordan, there's some debate on whether that just means to go, it's alongside of the Jordan, or actually you're going to cross it and go east of the Jordan. In many ways, it doesn't really matter. He says you're going to go into the wilds, and you're going to, you're going to camp near a little tributary that leads into the Jordan, the Kareth, the brook Kareth. The Lord places him there. There's a ready source of water, at least for a while, in his early portion of it. And while there's a ready source of water, God says that he himself is going to provide Elijah what he needs in terms of sustenance and his food. Now, Elijah, that he, though he stands and he declares an end to the rain from heaven, that he can stand and declare this word that will be fulfilled on the nation, he cannot declare an end to his own trial. Right? And God in His providence and God in His wisdom ordains both, doesn't He? And there are times, even <clears throat> as we sing, there are times of abundance when it all flows and there are times when the darkness comes and it is more difficult. And in the life of every believer, we see that Elijah can declare there will be no rain, but then he himself is driven into the wilderness. He's mightily used in in prayer, and he's used of God, but he is not exempt from the trials or the suffering and affliction that come with that calling. They were not exempt in this world. And not only that, not, and not only that but, but the fact that he was mighty in prayer and he was used of God and he was in this way was actually the cause of some of his suffering. Right? That it actually leads to that kind of thing. It was an answer to Elijah's prayers that got him into trouble and sent him into his wild and lonely isolation in the wilderness. It was because he was used. How often is that true for the church? When we, standly, when we stand to boldly speak the truth in dark times, that the very standing and speaking of truth, being bold with the Word of God, is the very cause of our being isolated and marginalized and pushed out where we must hide ourselves in some ways from the powers that be. So it's not just in spite of his faithfulness, but because of his faithfulness. Spurgeon puts it this way. He says, let us learn from this, dear friends, that the highest degree of grace cannot save us from affliction. Nay, that it even entails it. It means it involves it. It's part of it. Blessed and useful lives before God include suffering. And so again and again, the Scripture tells us to lean into it. 
that faithfulness before God includes it, and so we can lean into it, and at times even says to rejoice in it. It's during his exile that God says he will provide for him in every way. He'll provide for him naturally and supernaturally, and that's the way God does it, through means, and and then through his supernatural intervention. He's going to drink from the brook. He's going to plant him by a natural water source, and so he has what he needs for a period of time, and yet God says he will provide supernaturally for the sustenance that he needs in every other way. Verse 4, he says, You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. I love that phrase. It's just so simple. It's just so biblical. It's just so... Only the people of God, you know, hear it and don't, don't pause and just keep reading. You know, where you hear this, I have commanded. God says that kind of thing, and He does that kind of thing. I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. Right? I have... As if He could do such a thing. I have commanded... And the, and, and the ravens, the animals, obey. The sovereign Lord of creation is commanded. Right? And we shouldn't be surprised. In some ways we are. We read that sentence and it's supernatural. Right? It's, it's a natural means, the ravens, the birds. And on the other hand, it's supernatural. The Lord has commanded them to behave in ways they don't normally behave and to provide in, in ways for his people that are surprising and unusual. And in some ways, it comes, it's surprising. You're like, he commanded the ravens, like birds are bringing them food. And, you know, on the other hand, we should not be surprised, should we? I mean, this is, this is the Bible from the beginning to the end. Right? He is the one who called the waters from the deep and flooded the earth. He's the one who commanded and, and seas parted and rivers part. He's the one who commands at all times and shuts the mouths of lions or commands the great fish to swallow Jonah. He'll be the one who walks upon the water, who commands the wind and the wave. To He commands, and creation obeys. All of it, except for you and I. We're, all, we're usually the exception to the rule if there's disobedience in the creation. It's us. But He commands, Psalm 78 23 to 25, as we think about the feeding and care of God's people, it says, Yet He commanded the skies above, and He opened the doors of heaven. He commanded, and he rained down on them manna to eat, and he gave them grain from heaven. Man, mankind, men and women, ate the bread of the angels, and he sent them food in abundance. He is Lord of creation, and he is Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides and who is able to provide. He commands, and it is done, and he used ravens, which is fascinating, I use ravens to do it, which is interesting. If you know the Old Testament a little bit, you know, you'll know that ravens are unclean animals, right? They're not fit for food. You don't eat ravens, and yet he commands ravens, the unclean animal, to provide clean food for Elijah. And so often that God does that kind of thing, he uses surprising means. He draws, and some have said he draws straight lines with crooked sticks. And sometimes with us who are unclean apart from Christ, he will accomplish great things. But he uses these ravens to provide food for Elijah, which would be a test of his faith in more ways than one. One, that it's ravens that Elijah knows are unclean animals who are bringing him food, right? Two, that he's dependent upon God for this food to show up every day. 
Every day, he just hopes daily bread will show up. Right? But third, the birds are bringing it. Right? That would be a show. It would be a stretch of faith. I know for many of us, if we had to eat, I don't know how the birds are bringing it. I'm not really sure, you know, in terms of their, you know, but to eat food delivered by the hands, the claws, the beaks of birds, I don't know. Some of us might starve. I'm not sure any kind of bird will make a difference, even if it was a cardinal, you know, prettier. But I don't know if it would help. Morning and night, without fail, food shows up. God provides it. And Elijah's faith is grown and tested and, and deepened as he trusts God and, and daily learns to depend upon God to meet his needs and to carry him through this dark time. I wondered how did the ravens do it? I don't know if those thoughts are helpful or not. How did they do it? Right? Did they, I don't know, did they steal it? Where did they get it? You know, did they, were they, were they scavenging carrion, you know, in, in the meat? Like maybe, maybe fresh kill or something? I don't know. Were they, I don't know, were they hunting? Did he, did he, did he overcome their natural, you know, so that, they, I mean, they're already overcoming their natural to be playing this role in the life of Elijah. Did they, were they hunting? Were they, did, did it rain down like manna and quail from heaven to Israel in earlier days and, and the ravens were just delivering it? I don't know. But the point is that Yahweh is the Lord of creation in one way and another, often surprising ways, he is able to provide for his people. He is able to provide. So as we think about some of the lessons from this, lessons from Kareth, the takeaways, lessons from Camp Kareth. Number one is to remember that God's eminent saints, whether you consider yourself an eminent saint or not, if you are in Christ, you are eminent in God's eyes. Are you not? How can you stand in Jesus? Be counted righteous with his righteousness. And not in some sense be eminent. And an heir of God and a co-heir with his son. God's most eminent saints experience trials and suffering. It is the way of Jesus. right? It is the way of the cross. It's the via dolorosa. The way of suffering. Spurgeon said this, that God had one son without sin. He never had a son without affliction. I found that moving. He had one son without sin, but he never had a son or a daughter without affliction. Let us not ask to be the first, but be content to share the position of those whose inheritance is to be ours ever in the paradise of God. So Spurgeon is a man who, like Elijah, he was mightily used of God. Spurgeon was used in ways that won't take time here in terms of seminaries and orphanages and speaking to crowds of thousands and thousands on a weekly basis, but who struggled very deeply with depression and, and a number of physical illnesses that hounded him all the way to the grave. And yet he is a man who would say, God had one son without sin and never had a son without affliction. Let us be content to share this is what Paul says in Romans 8, 17. He says, we are the heirs of God and we are fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer. What a word. <laughs> provided we suffer 
with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. That we will suffer hardship in this world, particularly if we seek to be faithful. And particularly when we're being faithful, we will often be persecuted. They will speak all kinds of lies and evil against you because of him as we seek to be faithful. And so we lean into it. We lean into it. It is the testimony of saints through the ages that some of their greatest spiritual moments, their greatest spiritual highs, their mountaintop experiences that they have with God as he meets them and blesses them or uses them in some extraordinary way, we're told as often or not that it's, that it's followed by times of vulnerability, times of weakness, times even of depression. I've known those who have come off the mountain and found themselves not on level ground but in a valley. In times of vulnerability, testing, which is often more preparation. Which is why Peter, who is almost quoting Paul and applying it to a suffering church, says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes. It will come upon you to test you. Don't be surprised as though something strange were happening. But rejoice. Lean into it. Understand it that it's part and parcel of the calling to walk the way of Christ. Lean into it, rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's suffering. He suffered before us, and as we are his body on earth, we share his suffering now as we continue to speak his word and stand boldly in the face of those who would reject it. That we also may rejoice and be glad when its glory is revealed. As we strive to honor God, I was reminded of it again this week, as we strive to honor God and to be faithful in serving Him, how, how they will speak all kinds of lies against you, that they will persecute you because of me, that there is suffering and injustice that, that comes as part. As we try to be faithful, as we try to do what God has called us to do, as we do it as faithful as we know how according to His Word, it's on that account often that you are slandered. Rejoice to share with Christ. So it was with him and so it was with the prophets. And also, not only then do we share and lean into and rejoice in the suffering that we share with Christ, knowing we are co-heirs with him with the same inheritance, we also know that God is still Jehovah Jireh. That he is a God who is able to provide for his people. And how we have seen it again and again in the life of this church, in my own life, over not only these years, but of many years of testimony to God's faithfulness. To those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, he says, you will be filled when you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things will be added unto you. They will be provided for you. If you are his faithful servant, pursuing his calling as faithfully as you know how, your God He's able to provide. And if He sends you into the wilderness, if He sends you scurrying to hide by some lonely brook in an isolated place, He is still able to feed you there in more ways than one. Even there. He will provide. He doesn't need a town. He doesn't need a village. He doesn't need any help to be your provider. Jehovah, Yahweh, to you. What Elijah needed in the morning, arrived in the morning. And what Elijah needed in the evening, arrived in the evening. 
every day, day after day, month after month, year after year. You think he was there for several years. I saw this when I was younger. It's not as much as it is for me in these days, but when I was younger, I can remember uh, we were raising our own support, home missionaries, and seeking to, you know, a lot of times get ahead. You hear all the things, you know, the, 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 the pundits who teach you how to manage your money and you need an emergency account and to save up for this and that. And so we were constantly trying to save just a little bit aside, you know, and then, uh, then the car would need tires, and there it would go, right? And we'd save, and we'd say, you know, and scrimp and get just enough here, and then the refrigerator would die. You know, and it, and it literally got to be the place where I was getting pretty frustrated with, like, every time I try to get ahead, you know, every time I try to do just a little bit, right, there it goes. And then again, I don't hear an audible voice, but God does speak to me in many ways and many times. And, I, and it was as clear in some ways impressed upon me that God had provided that, that, that we would see, you know, I, I mean, I would literally stand back and say, all right, God, if that's what you want to do with your money. Right? Because at some level, you got to step back and say, it's your money. All right, that's what you want to do with your money. I had other plans for it. Right? I had a trip in mind or something, but no, four tires, sure. If that's what you want to do with your money. But at some point, you do got to say, but that is his money, and, and that is what he wanted to do with it in his providence in my life. And I began to see that not that he was taking away what little I had, but that he had provided exactly what I needed for that moment. Again and again, when the need was there, he had provided what we need. And at that time in my life, he didn't want it to be in that way. He wanted to teach us to trust him. He wanted us to see his provision. He wanted us to see, even as we scrimped, that our needs were met time and again. He's faithful. And God prepares his people for service through times of solitude. And I don't know how to bring this home, and I'm going to preach, I guess, this point and I still want to pause and just say that you need to get alone with God. That there is silence and solitude holds a place in Scripture. And Elijah's going to see it. He's not in the storm. He's not in the wind. He's not in the rain. And then there was a still, small, there was a silence and a whisper. That we need to get alone to turn it off and to shut it off and to turn it and to, and to walk away and to create space and margin in our lives for silence and solitude because that is where God prepares us for times of service, when we're alone with him in prayer and worship. You know, Elijah walks on the scene, and he, and he wanders onto the stage as this figure of, of prophetic, fearless strength, speaking to power in the halls of the king, and we're tempted to think that he was just zapped into usefulness. And we often, I think, sometimes think this. We do think that... People are zapped and they become deep, rich saints of God who can stand fearlessly. And I can tell you now, God is not a zapper. <laughs> he doesn't zap. He forms people. And he forms them over time. And he forms them through means. And, it, and in much of that is when we are with him. He forms and shapes us from glory to glory. As we behold that glory, we are shaped and formed in its likeness. James tells us in 5.17 of James that Elijah was a man of a nature like ours. He wasn't a zapped man. He was a, he was a man or a woman like you or I. 
right? He has a nature like ours, but he prayed fervently. And so we're told when he wanders onto the stage in that first verse and he speaks the name is the Lord, the God of Israel lives. He doesn't wander out there as a zapped man. He wanders out there as a man who had been praying fervently, who had spent, I would suggest, years walking with God and seeking God and praying and being with God. So the God then ultimately answers his prayer with Elijah himself. But it was the fruit of a life that went unformed and unseen for decades before he shows up. Spent years preparing, I would suggest, for that one sentence. For the boldness to speak the sentence, the confidence that that sentence would be fulfilled, that God would do what he said. And he speaks that one sentence, and God sends him back into solitude for three more years. Back into solitude. All right, he doesn't spend his whole time on the stage. He spends years at Camp Kareth, years by the brook of Kareth. This time of further preparation, there's more to be done. He has further confrontations, but he doesn't go from confrontation to confrontation. He speaks a word, and then he goes into hiding. He goes into solitude. He goes to be with God in a lonely and daily dependence upon God to feed him physically and spiritually, to get what he needs from him. The times in Camp Kareth, sometimes they follow a moment of victory like that. Many of you find yourself in the lonely isolation of Kareth by the brook, the wild isolation as times, suffering times of loss, and we find ourselves there. Right, times of struggle, times of brokenness, disappointment, sickness. And we find ourselves in that wild isolation. But it is God who places us in the wilderness. And he does it on purpose. He calls us into the wilderness to teach us dependence upon himself. That's a harder lesson to learn than we think. To really learn what it means to daily live in a dependence upon God who alone can meet your needs and give you what you need. Part of it is a lesson to learn and to understand that that is, he may do it physically or in some ways emotionally like that, but, but it is always true spiritually. And sometimes he uses that isolation, that, that loneliness or that, that time where he pulls you aside to teach you so that you will know that apart from him you can do nothing. And that you actually are daily and spiritually utterly dependent upon him, but we forget it and we walk around thinking we can do it. Which is why Jesus, he says, when you learn to pray, the very first thing you should pray is give us this day our daily bread. And you get to the requests, apart from the hallowing of his name and the honoring of who God is first. But then he says, ask for your daily bread. Even now, even you. These were people who lived in town and had access to these things. We need to know, and he will cause us to know and teach us our dependence. In the wilderness, we learn to know him and to trust him and to learn to be with him in the silence and in the listening and in the solitude. I love some of Michael Card. You guys know that about me already. <clears throat> but he has a song called In the Wilderness. And he says, in the wilderness we wander. 
In the wilderness we weep. In the wasteland of our wanting where the darkness seems so deep, we find that those who follow him must often walk alone. Yet wandering in the wilderness is the best way to be found. Groaning and growing amidst the desert days, the windy, the windy winter wilderness can blow the self away. In the wilderness, we are often emptied of ourselves. And it's often there that we find ourselves filled afresh with the Spirit. Where in your house, my friend, I believe that every Christian needs to not wait till they're called into the wilderness and driven there for years at a time, that you should have a place. Every Christian should have their own little carath, their own little camp away, an isolated place. Every house, you should have a place. Where in your house is your place where you go and you are alone with God on a regular basis, on a daily basis, where you seek Him and listen and you are apart from the noise and it's all shut off. Where God calls you into the fullness of His presence. It makes me think of Psalm 23 where He says He makes us to lie down by the quiet waters. And it's there that He restores our souls. It makes me think of Psalm 1. He is like a tree that's planted by the streams of water. And there it is fed by the streams of water. Right there it is nourished. Where is your stream? You know, where is your camp by Kareth? You know, where is that place where you go and you're a tree that is pulling life from him so that you can bear fruit? We cannot talk about Jehovah Jireh and about the glorious provision of God and not think of Jesus. God has provided for us anywhere. It is in the life of His Son, Jesus. Jesus who did not come to be served, but to serve, to provide. He came to give His life as a ransom for many, to provide what we need, to pay the debt that we owe. Jesus who provides Himself as priest and as sacrifice who provides then Himself, where if you abide in Him and He in you, you will bear much fruit. He provides Himself daily as the source, the river by which we must camp and abide and draw life so that we can be all that He calls us to be, the Son of God who died on the cross to provide for our every spiritual need. John 6, He says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whether it was the manna in the desert or the the bread that was provided for Elijah, it is ultimately Jesus that is the bread from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And it is a daily bread. It is not something you eat once when you come to know him and and there is life. He is a daily bread. That if we will abide in him and feed on him and eat the bread of life daily by fellowshipping with him and putting our faith and our trust in him, knowing him and loving him and worshiping him. Blessed are you if you hunger and thirst. For you will be satisfied. If your soul this morning is restless and hungry, if you're searching and you know there's more, I can remember my soul being in that very place where I went around from thing to thing wondering, is this it? Is this all there is? 
His, there's more. There was a hunger and a thirst for something. Because life was not given enough. There was not enough in it to meet my soul's needs. If you're searching and you know there's more and you're not satisfied, I suggest you get alone with Jesus. Jesus says, I am the living bread. Eat and live and be satisfied day by day, morning by morning, in the early watches. Abide in me. If God makes you to hunger and he calls you into the wilderness, do not take it as a curse. Do not take it that he has abandoned you and left you there. He calls you there. And just like he said, I find it interesting when he tells Elijah, go and camp by this brook and I've commanded the ravens and they will feed you there. Right? Not over there. They're not over there. I think if he went to town or if he went to here or he went to there, he would not have had what God wanted to give him. But he says, if you go there in the way of obedience into this lonely, isolated place, he says, I will meet you there. I believe he still says that to us again and again. He's told us where he will meet us, right? In the way of his word, in the way of prayer. And he says, go there and I will feed you. I will meet your needs in ways you never expected. By the brook, it is only you and the Lord the quiet waters of life. Will you get alone with Him? Will you seek that solitude, that silence? Will you hear His call to Kareth, where He prepares us, where He satisfies us with good things? Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank You that You are a faithful God, that You are Jehovah Jireh, that you are a God who provides our every needs, and even as you call us into faithful service and you call us into suffering, you also provide everything we need. That you meet us, and you love us, and you bless us, and you feed us, and you care for us, and you nurture us through the valley of this life and to the mountain of the next, the inheritance that is ours in Christ as we walk with him faithfully, Suffering and speaking and serving. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.